Why does one actuary describe our current system as organized crime? And what are the strategies that can help your clients survive it? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and chief transformation strategist, David Saltzman. Today's episode is brought to you by HR360, the trusted source for customizable compliance tools used by brokers and their clients nationwide. Their monthly benefits newsletter, ACA alerts, RAP SPDs, HR library, and other attorney review tools will help you keep your clients and win new ones, and at a cost that will amaze you. We try to include a lot of voices on the Shift Shapers podcast, and one of the voices that we have not yet heard from is an actuarial perspective. Now, today we're really excited to have Hobson Carroll with us, and as you'll learn very shortly, Hobson is not your typical actuary, but he brings an awful lot to the table in terms of his thought process and being a a thought leader and creative and provocative in the industry. He is the president of MedRisk Actuarial Services. And with that, welcome, Hobson. Hey, nice to be here, David. You describe part of the current system as organized crime. What brought you to the conclusion? What do you mean by that? Well, I, I used to use the analogy of, a, of an old feudal system underneath a king to illustrate the impact of Medicare and, and Medicaid, government-imposed pricing structures, and then the, the feudal system was, okay, all, all of the, like the Bucas, the Blue Cross, and the, the big insurance companies became like the dukes and the barons, you know, and they would run their own little fiefdoms, and they wanted to duplicate, they wanted to do what the king did, so... They couldn't do it quite as aggressively, but they could sort of like uh, still do it. And everybody was joined together to milk the, the peasants' cows, basically. And I decided that perhaps a more modern analogy was that it's, it's sort of like between the oligopoly and the oligopsony of the, the, the carriers or the insurance carriers and then the providers of health insurance, you had basically a couple of different organized crime families, the mafiosa, you know, who... And they basically carve up the turf, and the turf is society. And, and they say, well, we're going to control how this works. These people have to come get health care. We're going to control how the, the, you know, the one family controls how the, the pricing is going to be and, and the financing of that is going to be, and the other ones do the delivery. But they both have a, an extreme vested interest in basically keeping things the way they are. They get into the occasional spat or turf war, you know, like the you have the occasional uh, gang war, like in Waco uh, uh, on Sunday with the bikers. You know, they were carving up their turf. But most of the time, they settle down and they just business is as usual. In this case, it means the providers just increase their billmaster and the networks just get, continue to give them a get a discount off of that billmaster. But the whole thing spirals up very nicely, and society ends up just paying and paying and paying and paying. And then, of course, you have the corrupt cops, which are the regulators. Well, just to kind of round out the picture, right? Yeah, basically, that's how I, I've sort of seen it. Because when you look at how the vested interests work in this system and what they get out of it, there really isn't any motivation for them to change things much. Now, they will paint themselves as, oh, being innovators and cost control and management, etc. But at the end of the day, when you ask yourself the basic question, the bookers are 
is, are, are basically stock companies. They operate to get their stock price up. How does that happen if their revenue doesn't go up? And how does their revenue go up if they don't get a percentage of an ever-increasing spiral that goes up and up and up? I mean, there's only a limited amount of territory they can have. I mean, they're, they're basically, they replace business between each other. But as a whole, they're siphoning an, an economic rent off of the system by just simply being the favored nation by legal status, feeding off the flow of the money that goes from people and employers to providers. And so when you think about it, there's no motivation for them to lower their revenue, which is what would have to happen, okay, if indeed healthcare costs were brought under control and the trend were flattened out, let alone decreased. What would happen to their share price? Well, they can't have that. Well, we'll talk a little bit about solutions in a second, because I know that you have some very interesting ideas on that. But it's always important to engage in precision of language. I've been a writer for a long time. I know you and I talked about this off air. And I want to get the language set. So let's level set there. There are three phrases that you kind of take exception to or would explain in a different way. Let's touch on them one at a time. One of the things is self-funded. I'm going to fight that battle and lose uh, all my life. But it is a phrase that came into existence to try to describe the idea of being self-insured, and it's become synonymous with self-insurance. But when you think about what the word self-funded means, it doesn't really describe a whole lot. An employer who buys a a fully insured, what we call a fully insured, which is another, it's the mirror image of of the self-funded, they get a carrier to provide an insurance policy to cover their employees' benefits. Well, they're still coming up with the money to pay for that policy. So they're still funding it, And what is intended to be meant by self-funded employers is self-insured employers. That is the expression, or self-insured entities. In other words, instead of buying a third-party policy and getting your responsibility or your obligation taken care of that way, you do it yourself. You are a self-insurer. And in fact, the federal government through ERISA, now we're not talking about government non-ERISA plans here, but for the the lion's share of self-insured employers out there who are private employers, okay, the federal government established a special category of insurance entity called the self-insured employer or the self-insured employer trust, depending on how you want to approach it. And what they said was, you're an insurer, but you're not an insurer that states are allowed to regulate because up to that point, states are, are the only ones allowed to regulate the business of insurance. But that's the business of insurance. And the Fed said, you can't do that anymore because we've established this new category called self-insured employers. They are insurers in every sense of the word. They take on second-party liability, right? A promise to their employees, I'm going to take care of your your health insurance costs or your medical care costs, okay, through a self-insured health policy that I'm going to set up. Now, they may enlist a carrier through the stop loss to protect them, but they are the insurer. So it's a self-insured policy. And it leads to problems like partially self-insured, which is a sort of a misnomer. You're either self-insured or you're not. Yeah, it's kind of like being a little bit pregnant, I guess. Yeah, yeah. The second thing, and we've talked about this on this program a couple of times, is reference-based pricing. I know you have some thoughts about that language as well. It falls into sort of the same deal. The original use of the expression was essentially in relation to the, the uh, I forget if it was Anthem or Blue Cross, some blues or previous blues organization in California that was uh, the major insurer on the CalPERS program, looked at their network and said, hmm, we've got quite a range of, of prices for 
uh, certain bundles for things like knee replacements. And uh, we, it should be nice if we could get everybody to go to these facilities whose prices were much lower for the same thing in our network. And so they used those as a reference or a guideline and said, those are our reference prices because they were prices. They were prices set by the provider. And they said, basically, you know, if you come to these, we're going to waive your cost sharing. But if you don't go to these, we're going to treat you as if you were out of network, even though you were in network. But the point, the point is the phrase reference-based pricing referred to that situation, but it was quickly taken up as the expression to be used for any kind of allowed charge or allowed fee restriction in a health insurance plan, which should simply be called that, allowed charge amount of feature, which is a much more descriptive term of what's going on. When you, have a, when you say we're going to allow 150% of Medicare as our plan allowed charge, what you're basically saying is anything above that is not an eligible charge under the plan. But it's not a price, but a price is something the provider sets. And you may have providers that set their price anywhere over the map. What you're saying is we're going to hold a ruler up to that. And if you come in below that level with your price to that reference, then we'll cover it. If it's above it, anything above it, we don't cover. And now a word from our sponsor. In today's market, you need a competitive edge. And HR 360 delivers with their special program for brokers called the 750 Solution. Loaded with every major compliance tool your clients need, and it's great for prospecting too. HR 360's all in one program includes 750 subscriptions to HR 360's attorney reviewed online HR library that acts like an HR department for your clients, so you can provide a subscription to all your clients and prospects. You'll keep your clients current and compliant with ACA news alerts, checklists, and guides branded with your logo in addition to customizable monthly benefits newsletters and a free emailing system to send those newsletters and ACA alerts. And best of all, this entire popular program, including all of the tools I just mentioned, is only $899 a year. That's a special 30% discount just for Shift Shapers listeners. You really have to try it to fully understand the value in these attorney-reviewed customizable compliance tools. For a free trial access, to HR 360's tools, just click on the sponsor link at shiftshapersonline.com or email sales at hr360.com and mention Shapers to take advantage of that special 30% discount. And the last thing that I know that you take exception with is the phrase transparency. And we've talked an awful lot about that. And I know it means different things to different people. What's your problem with transparency? How do you think it would be better defined? Well, transparency is another one of those phrases. I, I, I don't really have a problem with it being used as it's generally used. I have a problem with it being used in isolation as if it by itself is a panacea to all our problems. On the other hand, transparency to the bukas is allowing people to know what their cost sharing will be on a given situation. Well, if they're in network or out of network, what their deductible and their coinsurance would be. Why? Because they think that people are only concerned with what it's going to cost them. Well, and they may be right. But when you think of the fact that the healthcare system has one basic customer, which is society, society is interested in the total cost of the situation. So we want transparency with the whole cost, not just that little subset, which is the responsibility of the, the beneficiary. But so I'm interested in what I call, I guess, holistic transparency. 
And also recognizing that just because we know what it is doesn't fix the problem, but it will help. And that is to lead to competition. You know, there's that famous expression, I forget who is uh, authored it. I've seen it in John Goodman columns and other places. But if you don't compete on price or cost, you won't compete on quality. But if you do compete on price, you will darn sure compete on quality. And that's what we need to do. So transparency needs to be combined with some kind of rational basis for setting your prices as a result of them having to be transparent. Something like Keith Smith uh, has done in Oklahoma City, where he said, look, this is my price. It doesn't matter what card you've got in your pocket. This is my price. I believe in non-discriminatory transparent pricing. It's because it's part of a, a bigger picture, I think. That's a great expansion of that definition. I think that kind of informs the discussion in, in a new and different way. So with all of that said, what do you see as some of the solutions to some of these problems that we've identified so far this morning? Well, knowledge is a powerful thing, David. And uh, transparency is very important in getting knowledge, getting information. If, if the information is available either directly or through an intermediary, then people can make better choices about things. It's sort of like having to point out that the emperor has no clothes when it comes to trying to keep beating the drum or beating my head against the wall sort of makes the same sound at getting people to realize what the bukas and the hospital systems are doing to us when they have networks. People believe they have to have a network in order to be protected, to get healthcare services, et cetera. And they've made, they've defined the terms upon which competition is based. Our network's bigger than yours. Our discount is bigger than yours. And nobody looks at the underlying question, which is, after the discount, what is it going to cost me? And is there a better way to get to a better cost through not necessarily being in the network? So as long as we're legally and regulatorily allowed to design health insurance plans that do not use networks directly and maybe don't have them at all in, in the traditional sense, i.e., the United Healthcare Network, the Blue Cross Network, et cetera, but rather say, look, we believe a reasonable compensation to a provider is up to 150% or 160% or 140% of Medicare. Medicare is not a perfect measuring stick, okay, but it's, it's the stick we got. And as long as we've got some margin cut around it, it can be a useful measuring stick. And we can say, look, that should be a reasonable amount to allow you a margin, and if we base our allowed charges, the plan designs itself and says we don't have a network, what we have is we have an allowed charge amount schedule in our plan, which is whatever it turns out to be, and we will allow costs up to that level. If you come in below that level, that's fine, but if you're over that level, that difference is going to be a balanced billing to you, and you get people realizing what's there, and then they will, in fact, start becoming consumers. Now, it's important to help find providers who will be able to provide services to those people. And so you have to incorporate into your plan design tools to help the consumer, whether it's concierge services or uh, medical purchase services, uh, things like uh, Ralph Weber's MediBid or uh, some of the other programs, you know, the tools like uh, the Blue, whatever, what's it called? You know, there, there are these tools out there that help to help you find providers who will, in fact, provide quality services 
for a fixed price that is good compensation for them and a reasonable price for the employer plan to pay. And so you have to do that with self-insurance. I think you were alluding to Healthcare Blue Book. Yes, thank you. And it was blue when it had health and height. <laughs> <laughs> you get partial credit. It's okay. Hobson mentioned Keith Smith. For those of you who missed our interview with Keith Smith, and Keith is a really interesting guy doing really interesting things down in Oklahoma City. You can find him on episode 58 on our website. We've got about four minutes, five minutes left. And I wanted to ask a question. I know there's a, we hear an awful lot from benefit advisors who are struggling to find new motifs for clients. And they really want to try to take their smaller clients and get them into a self-insured arrangement. What's your feeling on that? What are the caveats? And, and do you think it's a good idea at all? Well, let's consider the motivations for these people. Unfortunately, I'm diplomatic when it comes to uh, the people who market themselves uh, in the the small group area and euphemistically called brokers. If they're actually doing consulting, that's one thing. But they're just brokers. They're basically looking out to protect themselves. As we move forward and the definition of large group and small group becomes 100 rather than 50 for most states, the compensation they've heretofore been able to get on that size group being shrunk down to what the exchange level plans pay, which isn't nearly as much as they used to get. That in itself doesn't invalidate, okay, just because they live in a glass house doesn't mean it doesn't provide some shelter. So having said what I said about them, the fact of the matter is there are some employers who will find self-insurance for the smaller size group to be a valid option to them as long as they are educated. The key to self-insurance has always been having an educated buyer. Because the truth of the matter is, the the buyer who has issues with their health insurance plan, however they've come to know what they are, shouldn't want to touch self-insurance with a 10-foot pole if they're told the reality of what's involved and what you have to do to be a good self-insured employer. I was writing Stop Loss Down to 25 Lives in 1985, and uh, we had a program that targeted that, and they were done very successfully. But the key to it was making sure that the employer was told up front all of the risks, because it is ri- you take risk in exchange for the possibility of reward. And if that's not explained properly, they make a bad decision. No question. In the minute or two that we have left, Hobson, I wonder, we always try to wrap up and ask our subject matter experts the question about where they see the future going and define that as you will, two years, three years, five years. What do you see? What changes do you see on the horizon? Well, there's obviously short term and long term. In the short term, which let's say is two to three years, we're probably looking at continued chaos as the ACA implementation continues to unfold. The size the Cadillac tax, the impact of that and everything. And so there will be a lot of chaos. Chaos creates opportunity. And so there will be ways to play. However, I'm afraid that past the logic, we get to politics. And it may very well depend on who the next president is as to what happens to our system. It is not, even though I think it is genetically inappropriate for America to have a real single-payer, single-provider system, it is not politically impossible to see that in six, seven, eight years. I'm not saying we will. I'm just saying there's too many variables between it now and then. 
But in the meantime, self-insurance and using self the, the flexibility to design plans and design your allowed fee amounts in your plans are the cutting edge of trying to get a handle on increasing healthcare costs in this country. A great place to end our interview, Hobson Carroll, president of MedRisk Actuarial Services. Hobson, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with the Shift Shapers audience. I enjoyed it. Hope I can come back sometime. We'd like that. Thank you. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of the Saltzman Group. We work with entrepreneurs, executives, and companies just like you to help shape the shifts in your business. To schedule a 20-minute call to learn more, visit our website at thesaltzmangroup.com or call me directly at 803-386-8005. I'd love to hear from you. And while you're on our site, you can also click the podcast tab for the entire catalog of Shift Shapers episodes and to access some really great special offers. Give me a call at 803-386-8005 and learn how to put the secrets of the Shift Shapers to work in your business. 